it's not that we were smarter or anything like that. It literally was the energy. The energy kind of went, because if you go victim energy, you're, you're looking to say it's over. Yeah. But if you go hero energy, you're looking to go, ah, there's a, there's a glimmer of light somewhere in here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where is it? Welcome to the find your voice podcast show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Hi, writers. I am so excited to share today's episode with you because today on the Find Your Voice podcast, I interview a longtime friend and mentor of mine, Donald Miller. Donald Miller is not only the author of several best-selling books, he's also the founder of StoryBrand, which helps businesses clarify their message so they can win in the marketplace. And even though the StoryBrand framework was built for business owners and leaders, I talk about this on the episode, it has improved my writing process dramatically. In fact, I think I've learned more from Don about writing than I've learned just about anywhere else. Today on the podcast, we venture outside of the story brand framework though and talk about a regular practice of writing, the emotional benefits of writing. We talk about writing your personal story. We talk about writing memoirs for publication. And we talk especially about how writing can help you have a massive impact on the world. Don shares the two questions he thinks you need to answer if you want to find your voice. He talks about his own personal habits for a practice of writing and gives some tips on what you can try. He talks about how and why writing your personal story might be so healing. And this is my favorite part. He goes over the four archetypes or characters that we can play in our personal stories and how playing those various characters impacts the outcome. This has a huge impact on not only how we write about our stories, but also how we live them. Finally, we cover how words can help you navigate a crisis since present day, we're walking through this weird COVID-19 quarantine situation. We're not sure how long this will go on. So I hope that this helps you not only in this current situation, but if you're listening to this episode in the future, I also hope it helps you navigate any other crisis that you might face By the way, a small side note about that, because we're quarantined and we're all staying safe, normally I would have popped over to Don's house in Nashville and interviewed him there, but of course we're doing this interview over the phone, so please excuse the fact that you can tell that he is on the phone and the sound quality is not exactly what I would love for it to be, but really great content and I know you're going to love this. Ultimately, I know you're going to walk away from this episode inspired to write, And also with more clarity to think about your personal story. So thinking about your personal story and writing about it. It's incredibly inspirational. I hope you enjoy. Hey, I'm here today with Don Miller. Thanks for joining me. Sure. Good to be here. Well, let's jump right in with the question that I always start these interviews with, which is what does find your voice mean to you? (laughs) It's a lot of beating your head on the desk. Uh, <laughs> what it means to me, <laughs> you know. Well, it means a lot of things, right? I mean, it means you know believing that you have something helpful to say, right? So believing that you 
not have the right to speak up because I think everybody has the right to speak up, but that it's worthwhile for you to speak up about whatever it is that, that you want to talk about. Um, whether that's family or to friends or to the mat, to a, a, a more commercial audience, you know, a wider audience. Then the other part of that is literally to figure out the tone with which you're going to use to write whatever you're writing. Because I think we're all, we're all four or five different people, right? Mm. And you got to figure out which one of those combination, the combination of those personalities that you are, which voice you are going to use as a method for writing this book, you know? And so, you know, I have memoirs and I have business books and the voices are very, very different because I used a different voice Yeah, and they're all, they're both me, you know, figuring out what voice that is, is actually, in my opinion, it's a very important part of the book writing process. It happens pretty early in the process of what voice are you going to use delivering this message? So two different things, you know, the one that you believe that it's worthwhile and you are worthy to actually speak something helpful into the world. And then the tone with which you're going to do that. That's great. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners know you more for your memoirs. Maybe they've kind of followed your transition to StoryBrand, but could you give people a sense of what you do at StoryBrand and also how that's developed into Business Made Simple? Yeah. The, well, I started out as a memoirist and wrote, and there weren't really memoirs, Ali. I mean, you know my books, they're, they're, uh, yeah. they're more like uh, Christian perspective kind of books through a memoir voice, like Traveling Mercies or something like that. Yeah. But Traveling Mercies was a big, it was a book that I patterned my books after. So then I wrote six or seven of those and just didn't have anything else to say. So <laughs> uh, I had been thinking so much about story and narrative in order to write those books that I developed. Um, there's a company, a big consulting firm called Accenture that hired me to do a project management project and he was using narrative structures and thought structures to do to motivate a team. In other words, how do you invite a team into a story so they can accomplish something? Years later, that would evolve into a marketing framework that small businesses could use. And really, it was me just sort of exploring other stuff because I got tired of writing about myself. And then I wrote a book called Building a Story Brand about that process, and that book took off and became a company. So we're now using that same process of kind of making things simple and easy to understand heavy emphasis on inviting people into a story to create uh, an execution framework, a sales framework, mm-hmm. a management framework, uh, a, you know, the, the marketing framework that already exists. And that has birthed a company called business made simple and business made simple basically wants to be a companion to the university system in terms of developing professionals. So that's a really weird journey. And when I think <laughs> about the guy who sat down to write memoirs and the guy today sits down to write business books, there's a is a one. It feels like a 100 percent different human being. And I, I think I've had one or two people that always cracks me up when they come up to me and say, "Hey, do you ever get confused with the guy who wrote Blue Like Jazz?" <laughs> I literally, so I often think. I, I get confused myself. <laughs> All the time I wake up and look like in the that. mirror. <laughs> Who is this guy? Yeah, it's, really, it's really very different. And, and I'll, occasionally, even the other day, somebody said, why did you sell your soul and go into business? And said that on Instagram. And oh, I just geez. thought, man, it, really mu- it must really look that way from the outside. You know, it's quite a head-turning pivot. Where In my actual life, it feels like one foot just in front of the other going the, stri- going the same direction. You know, sure. Keep continuing to explore the idea of story and how to tell our story, how to invite people into a story, how a brand can tell their story, how 
a project yeah. with a group of people can bring a story to life. You know, it all feels like the same thing to me, but from the outside, I think it would be, it would be perceived very differently. Yeah. Well, I'll say as someone who has followed along the journey, both as your friend and you've also been a mentor to me, and I've also participated with StoryBrand by teaching private workshops and delivering keynotes and been really involved with the StoryBrand journey along the way too, that to me, the transition seems really natural because story, the framework that you teach to businesses to help them communicate more clearly about what they do maybe wasn't necessarily meant for this, but it it has made me such a better writer. I think exponentially of all the things that I've done. I mean, it's crazy to think about how much I learned getting a master's degree and then how much I learned writing my first two, three, four, five books. And then I come into contact with the story brand framework and suddenly it was like an epiphany light bulb for me. And I, and you didn't intend, I don't think for that framework to be, a framework to help people outline their books or outline a chapter. I do know you use it for that, but, but yeah, to me, the transition seems, it seems so connected because, you know, now when I sit down to write um, a blog post or an Instagram caption or a chapter or content for my website, now I have a direction and it doesn't feel, you know, it used to feel like, Oh, this is going to take me eight hours. (laughs) And now I'm like, okay, 20 minutes, let me map this out. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's I'm just simplified the process so much. Yeah, it, I'm grateful for that because it, you know, it really is. It, it, it really is a framework that story brand framework is a framework that works. Yeah, I mean, you can actually apply it to parenting. You, know, you can wow. apply it to parenting or writing a blog or writing a book or starting a company or managing a project or, you know, because story is just universal. It's yeah. Just the way we organize our lives, our, our brains, we organize our happenings in the form of a narrative. So it makes, yeah, but I'm grateful that it was helpful to you because we certainly need more of your voice. I know a practice of writing has been a regular part of your life for, I mean, I guess I don't know how long, as long as I've known you and longer. How has that practice of writing helped you to reach the level of success that you've reached in, in all areas of your life? Man, I really, I feel like I would be a, a complete walking around in the woods guy if I hadn't started writing. It would be number one discipline or outlet or hobby, whatever you want to call it, that has just dramatically changed my life. I mean, you know, in in the sense that, you know, it's almost like there are people who have the habit of exercise. They go to the gym every day or they jog five miles every day or whatever. Mm. And it, you know, it has a dramatic, or yoga or whatever. And it has a dramatic impact on almost every other facet of their life. I would put writing up there with that for me, except you're not in good physical shape because you wrote, you do your figure exercise through that you're in great mental shape. Mm. The real power for me, Ali, and I don't know if you can identify with this with your memoirs, but when, when I looked back and tried to write about the, I don't know, the last two or three years, really I'm not memorializing those years. What I'm really doing is framing them in my own mind yes. and saying, I, you know, who knows what really happened? You know, <laughs> the facts in this, the facts in this story are true, but they are from my perspective sure. and, I wasn't in the room when I wasn't in the room, so I have no idea what happened. So really what you're doing is you're framing the events of your past and choosing to interpret them in such a way that is helpful to you and to others. Yes. To me, that's the whole, that's what a memoir, that's what the exercise of a memoir is if you choose to view it that way, because it doesn't have to be viewed that way. That's not the right way to do it. You view a memoir. But that's the way I approached all my writing about growing up without a dad. You know, what I was doing was healing old wounds and saying, Okay, I grew up without a dad and I didn't learn a lot of stuff. 
So I'm going to go back and write a little book about this and frame that reality so that it's helpful to me and helpful to others. Mm. So when you do that, you heal, you do. right? And, and the other thing is, I think there's, you know, some of your audience, m- many people in your audience haven't written their story yet and shared it with friends and family and had people read it. And I think there's this very healthy desire to be known, heard, and understood by a group of people. Sure. And I remember feeling that so very deeply in my bones that I wanted to be known and understood. And the wonderful thing about writing memoirs is you, it happens. It does. You know, like yeah. it, actually, it actually happens. People read them and they come to you and they go, man, I felt that way too. And you have some really meaningful conversations. So much so that, you know, you know, and you and I know each other, know each other for a long time. It's like, I don't have any more appetite for it. You know, yeah. like if you came to me and said, Don, do you want to be known and understood? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> you yes, me? I'm known enough. It's like you, 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 you eat a Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, you want a turkey sandwich? No, <laughs> go, give me a few hours. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that not as a complaint. I mean it as like, a this is a huge blessing. Like, if yes. you, you know, even if you can't get published, the fact that somebody would sit down and read your your words and honor your life and somehow connect with them is extremely healing. It is. It doesn't have to be in a published version. In fact, I think a published version is almost too much. You know, it's not really, we're not designed for strangers to come up and, comp- and comment about our lives. So it's helped me, it's helped me heal my wounds from the past and by framing my story in such a way that it's helpful. Uh, it's helped me connect with other people and feel known and heard to such degree. I feel full and can now give back to other people so that they can be heard and understood. And, you know, the third thing is just very practical. It's provided a, a, a terrific living. Sure. You know, I mean, you know, not, there's no money in book royalties. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, <there's, laughs> but, you know, the, the, you'll get in, I'll get invited to go speak at some business conference and help people figure out their narrative marketing. None of that would have happened if I hadn't written a book. So, yeah. you know, just those three practical things have been very much a blessing. Well, one thing I want to touch on that you you talked about this is, and we talk about this a lot on the show and just in general with Find Your Voice, that it doesn't, in order to get the emotional healing from writing your story, it doesn't require selling a million copies or hitting a bestsellers list, but your books have obviously been incredibly successful in the marketplace. So how do you, a couple of different facets to the question, but like, how do you account for that? kind of success? Were you planning on it? Did you know it was coming? Did you, was there something you did that made your book that successful? And, and I guess, is there a piece of advice you would give to other writers? Yeah, I think, um, I, I really did feel like that I had something to say and that, you know, I don't want to lie and say, no, I never thought it would happen to me. I wanted it to happen to me. I wanted to be a bestselling author. I wrote it down as a goal when I was in high school to be a New York Times bestselling author. I didn't realize then how stupid and naive I was to think that that could ever actually happen. <laughs> the shocking thing for me is not that, uh, you know, I've had books on the bestsellers list. The shocking thing is I've had books on the bestsellers list and I'm actually not that good of a writer, right? So th- there's, <laughs> there's an injustice about the whole thing that to me, I was delusional about. And I got really lucky. The reason that I'm a bestselling author today is actually very practical. I had a roommate when I was single, I just lived with a bunch of guys and he worked for an organization called, I think it was called Campus Crusade for Christ or something like that. It was an evangelistic organization. And my book, you know, had a lot of spiritual thoughts in it because like, it, you know, it's about coming out of a very conservative Southern Baptist church in Texas and then attending the 
the most godless school in America. It's about the the, uh, mm. the Venn diagram between those two worlds. And my roommate thought this would be incredible a book for for my organization to share on college campuses because it would begin spiritual conversations. And I was like, great, you know. And so over the next two years, my roommate kept telling everybody about it and that organization decided to buy like 150,000 copies. Like they, they literally printed their own versions of it and they bought them for like three bucks and I got no money and of course didn't want any. And they started dropping them on college campuses to stimulate conversation. And so what you had there was, you know, a hundred people on a campus with 5,000 people all yeah. reading the same book, which made then other people went and bought the book. And then, they would come home and tell their families about it and as a way to say, I want you to understand me. And so mom and dad would buy the book. And, try. Hmm. and so my whole point with all that is if you really want a best-selling book, the last thing you want to do is write a book and then don't tell anybody about it because you secretly hope people discover what a genius you are. <laughs> that is an absolute, <laughs> it's just the most amateur way to go about it. And, you know, at some point in every writer's career, you grieve the fact that you're not John Steinbeck. You know, you <laughs> grieve the fact that you're not Annie Dillard and you go, okay, even though I'm not Annie Dillard, I, I'm okay. And people aren't bored when they read my book. So I'm just going to keep writing. Yeah. And to me, that, that was a very healthy, wonderful transition. But what I realized though, is when I write a book, I want it to be useful. So the reason that book accidentally took off, and by the way, it was almost two years after it came out that it took off. Uh, it wasn't right off the press the reason that book took off is it was useful to this organization to accomplish a mission. Mm. And I learned something from that. And so I learned, well, my marketing book needs to be useful to an organization to clarify their message. And the book that I'm writing now, Business Made Simple, that I turned in last night is useful to a company to instill a learning and development culture within their organization so their professionals improve themselves and their skills. So that's one of the questions I would ask if I were a publisher. I would say, the book that you want to write is useful to who to accomplish what? And you don't have to have an answer for that, but you have much more likely, you're going to be much more likely to be a commercial success if you do, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes tons so, of sense. Yeah, that's, you know, I got lucky and kind of stumbled upon that and, and it really helped and I've kind of reverse engineered that with every book since. So knowing we have we have a huge handful of listeners who are interested in writing their own books and especially during this present time, this COVID-19 quarantine time, I've heard from several of our listeners and people on social media who are saying like, now's the perfect time to write a book. I've got all this extra time on my hands. And I agree. And also, I think it's not necessarily the perfect time for every person to write a book. I'm curious what you would say, what's a really, a really great reason for a person to dive into a book writing process right now? Well, I'm definitely doing it. I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm expecting to get six to eight months work done in the next two months because we have time. So, and I can't get on airplanes and I can't be distracted. I mean, you know, I won't experience anything like this for eight or 10 more years, you know? And (laughs) so it's time to, you know, and by that, I mean, like, I'm going to have to force it to happen. I'll have to go, that's, you know, I'll have to go to a cabin somewhere for months to meet, to get this kind of focused energy and time. So I do think it's a good time that said, you know, I don't think, you know, Allie, maybe you can disagree with this, but I don't think you'd get a good book written in two months. I think you, I think books need time to breathe and they need you to go for walks and take showers and have play cards with friends and accidentally see this one movie with this one line that stimulates you to go, you know, I mean, it just takes time. And uh, I do think there are ways to dramatically 
improve the, you know, the amount of time it takes or decrease the amount of time it takes and using other writers, you know, I've never done that before until the last book. Then you helped us write a bit of marketing made simple. And my friend JJ went back through it again. And then I went through it and I just discovered, wow, this is, I still get everything I get. I get, it's my voice. It's what I wanted to say, but somebody else kind of went in and put all the sheetrock on. And now I get to go in and paint the walls and bring in the interior furniture, you know? And so to me, working with others to write a book is new to me, but it's, I'm, I'm in, I'm hooked. Now that doesn't mean I'll do it with every book because there's some books that just takes, it's in my head and I can't explain it to you. So I got to do it myself. And, and we're, really that's code for, I'm not exactly sure what I'm trying to yeah, do. Yeah. So I can't explain it I got to work you. it out through the writing process. Yeah, <laughs> that's I know. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, approximately 7 a.m. I'm in the, I have a writing shed in my backyard. It's a little eight by 10 room with no water, running water or anything. No, no internet. And, just a little air conditioner unit and, and 7 a.m. Pretty much I need to be in this room until about nine. You know, that to me is the discipline of, of getting a book done day after day after, you know, you do that day after day after day, you take the occasional day off so you can rest your brain a little bit, but this is a great time to do it. You know, I mean, yeah. if you can, if you, if you can do it and a lot of us, you know, we have kids or we have jobs, or we have whatever. And so, well, you know, we can't, you might have to get up at 5 a.m. Sure. I mean, you know, it's, you know, people complain a little bit about how hard it is to write a book and the luxury of <laughs> that you get to do it. And it's, it's like, no, you can't, you know, you can't be a victim. Like if you want to write a book, you, you have to sort of obsess about it. Yeah. And you've got to get up and work from five to seven because the kids are going to get up at seven. And you'll find that day three of doing that, you actually really love it. And then you're kind of going, wait, I can't believe I complained about this. This is a terrific way to live. Totally. And you Um, do have to fall in love with the process a little bit, I think, too. You do. You can't want the end result. You have to fall in love with the process. Because even for really successful authors, I have found that if you were to take the hours they invested in creating the book and divide it by the amount they get paid, you're still getting paid nothing. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like pennies. That's (laughs) why we need to sue the publishers for slave labor. (laughs) True. (laughs) Oh, man. Are you ready to finally make progress with the book you're working on? We think now is the best time to write a book, which is why we're bringing you a one-time opportunity to get the one-on-one support you need. Prepare to Publish VIP is for you if you're serious about getting a book out in the world as quickly as possible. Maybe you know a book can grow your business, or maybe you have a message you know can change the world. Either way, you finally have the time to work on it. So get focused one-on-one attention that will expedite your process, get feedback from our expert coaches on every aspect of the book so you know for sure you're getting it right, and leverage this unprecedented time to get an unprecedented amount of work done. We can help you do it. By the way, this type of support usually goes for $10,000 and usually requires you traveling to meet us in person. But for a limited time, we're offering a discounted rate and bringing our support right to your office or living room. Don't waste the gift of time you have right now to finally write the book you've been dying to write. We've made it easy and we'd love to help. Register today at findyourvoice.com slash publish. Okay, I want to transition a little bit to talk about what's going on present day. And I know if people are listening to this down the line, 
it might not apply directly, but I still do think it applies because on this show, we talk a lot about the power that words have to influence our personal world, our communities that we live in, and then also the world at large. And I think there's no better time to talk about this than during this period of time, COVID-19, the quarantine, um, what's happening with the economy. But really, this... you know, the conversation that we're about to have, I think would translate really nicely to any time that you're living through a crisis, whether it's a personal crisis or a corporate crisis. And I'm just curious to launch into the conversation. One of the things I've appreciated so much about watching you from a distance, watching what you're posting on social media and knowing you as a friend, having phone conversations with you and listening to kind of how you're talking yourself and your family and your, your team through this time is just the leadership that you're demonstrating, the positivity And I can pick up on a real intentionality behind the words that you're using and the words that you're not using. So Mm. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Is there, is there intentionality behind that and where does that come from? How are you using words to lead during this time? Yeah. Well, you know, as you and I talk, Allie, we're two, approximately two weeks into a a quarantine, a sort of shelter in place uh, mandate by various state governments. There's not a federal one yet, but, but basically everybody's obeying the rules and, trying to stay away from each other so this virus doesn't pass. And the economy is shut down. And so we probably have another month of this, if not six more weeks. And mm-hmm. people listening 10 weeks from now will know whether or not that's true. We hope that's true. But, it, you know, there'd be a temptation to really get down about this. And I've just gone back and reflected on these four, four archetypes that exist in story. You know, the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. And those archetypes exist in all these stories because they exist in you and me, right? It's not that yeah. you're the you're the villain and I'm the victim and somebody over there. They're all four of them are in every one of us. That's where we see them. That's why those characters exist in stories because we are each of those. And so, you know, the, the way we can react to this, the victim says, woe is me and life is terrible. And I can't believe this whole thing has happened and everything is falling apart and I've got no way out. And the, the reality is a victim is somebody who has no way out. And we do have ways out. There are things mm. that we can do. So we're not victims. And, and the terrible thing about a victim in a story is they're really a bit part. You know, they make the hero look good. They make the villain look bad. At the end of the day, at the end of the story, the, the victim comes out of the, the bank where they were held hostage. You put a blanket on them, put them in an ambulance, and the ambulance drives off. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's it. The story is not. And then you follow the hero. The camera stays yeah. with the hero, not with the victim. So the sad news is if we play victim, the same thing happens in our lives that happens in the stories. And we are just a bit part. And in real life, victims victims always live in that role in a temporary capacity. They are rescued and then they're turned into heroes and they go help somebody else. So mm. victim is, it's a noble role when it's real, but it's the worst possible thing to do if it's not. Because if you play the victim, you're sucking resources and energy into yourself that don't then go to somebody who is actually a victim. Wow. And so I, you know, I mean, I go into victim default mode occasionally too i find myself doing it all the time you know for example i'll eat you know last night i ate a big chocolate chip cookie that i shouldn't have eaten I went, oh why'd you do that I mean, and it's like wait a second you're not a victim you chose to put the cookie in your mouth Such a good example. <laughs> but it's really funny like steve cartman you know he's got this drama triangle persecutor yes uh, victim and rescuer and it's genius. I mean, it's genius that he came up with it. Well, that's actually existed for 2000 years. It's called hero, villain, you know, mm. uh, victim. And it's the same thing, but I'll find myself, you know, going, Oh gosh, you know, 
I'm going to rescue myself and have this chocolate chip cookie. And then I'm like, oh, I'm such a victim of the chocolate chip cookie. And then why did you eat that chocolate chip cookie? So I literally like, wait, it's been eight seconds and I've played to myself, <laughs> persecutor, victim, and rescuer. <laughs> so Cartman was on to something. Anyway, uh, but the more energy that, uh, that we spend in the victim role, the more our lives are going to end up the way the victims end up in stories. And that's their lives are either destroyed to make the villain look bad or their lives are rescued by somebody to make somebody else look good. And there's mm-hmm. no transformation in that role for us. None of that. You don't get any of it. And so then there's the villain role, which the villain is, has been hurt and they're lashing out and trying to hurt others because they're hurt, you know, and they're, and they're, they usually have minions and no friends. Everybody has to submit to them. They're usually controlling. They're usually trying to bring about some sort of distorted or perverted justice into the world. But it, it, but in the end, it's just really all about them and their the way they process their wounds is not helpful to others. So when I find myself snapping at people and just wanting them to do what I want them to do and not really bring their humanity to the conversation and not and then I know I've I've gone into the villain role in some mild way. And the villain in the story, the story's not even over until the villain is defeated, right? So yeah. if you play the villain long enough, you are going to be defeated. But you literally summon the universal energy around you to rise up and defeat you to bring about a resolution of conflict and justice. So whenever you play the villain, that's what you're doing. You're literally telling everybody around you, come get me and bring me down. And that's what happens. So, you know, it happened to Lance Armstrong. It happened, you know, it's going to happen to Donald Trump probably. You know, it happened to Richard Nixon. It's going to, you know, on and on and on. Those characters spent too much time in the villain role. Not all their time. I mean, those, everybody I just named also spent a good bit of time in the heroic role. But when push came to shove, they went villain. Mm-hmm. And the story ended the way it ends for a villain. And then there's the heroic energy, which is, you know, we understand that uh, life is very difficult and there's a challenge that's been placed before us. We don't know how this thing is going to work out, but we act in faith, trying to make the best we can toward an end in which, you know, conflict is resolved and heroic energy means I'm going to get up and fight. I'm going to, I'm going to have a perspective on maybe this thing can work out and I'm going to try to rescue some folks along the way. And then the guide energy is the energy of, I'm going to try to help the hero, right? I'm going to help the hero win. And I've already defeated the villains in my past and overcome challenges. And now I can help other people. And you tend to have to be the hero for a long time in order for the guide energy to really manifest itself. So for me, you know, you kind of hit this crisis and conflict and you go, okay, well, if each of those victim, villain, hero, guide roles is a gear shift in a car, you know, there's gear one, gear two, gear three, gear four. I want to try to spend as much as I can in gear three and gear four. Yeah. And um, so when the crisis hit us, you know, we, we were, we, we are a live events company. We do train in-person training. You have to get on an airplane and fly to Nashville to be here. And then we're in a room with 200 people. So our, our 80, that's 80% of our business. Yeah. So 80% of our business is completely shut down. And I just kind of, you know, I spent about 12 hours going, I don't see a way out of this. I mean, I, this is, this is it. You know, yeah. we're going to lose the house that Betsy and I just built. I mean, and then I said, wait a second, that's such victim energy. You know, what if we just, I don't know, what if we just actually tried to have, um, the exact same financial goals we had before this crisis yeah. <laughs> and just said, no, this isn't going to affect us. We're, we're actually, and we pivoted our live events to live stream events. We created a couple other revenue streams. We got lean as a company and we'll actually do 
the same amount we did before this crisis, but with better profit margin. Wow. And there's and a transformation the, for me at the end of this. There's a total there's transformation. A it's not, you know, I don't think it's a spiritual principle. It, it might be, but you know, I, I, I might not take it that far. I just go, yeah, you tend to find what you're looking for. And if you, if you're looking to, if you're looking to be heroic and face a challenge head on and overcome that challenge, a lot of people, when they get into that energy, they're shocked to find out that that wasn't that big of a challenge anyway. Yeah. It's just that everybody else gave up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're kind of going, uh, not that hard. So anyway, you know, I, I hope that there are people in really dire situation who, who are listening to us. And I hope that, that that doesn't come off as callous, except to say that I really think the role, the identity that you believe you are has more of a bearing on how your life turns out than any other factor, how much money you have, whatever, mm-hmm. what you've been through. Just literally like, if you think like a victim, you're gun. That's where the story goes. It's, it's been written in the stars since Aristotle wrote his book poetics. And if you think like a hero, this is where your story goes. If you think like a guide, this is where your story goes. I think it's the greatest predetermining factor, you know, and I've seen this in you, Ali, just in our friendship, you and Betsy are such close friends. You know, you're went through a, you know, a hard, uh, divorce with a loser, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> and, uh, and you just never went, I'm sure you went victim like alone in your sure. room, right? Yes. But, uh, you know, but you just, you just never manifested victim energy. You manifested mm-hmm. heroic energy all the way through. You converted that into a literary career. You married a, a man who I respect as much as any man on the planet now. And you've told your story and now you're, you know, you're helping other people tell their story. And that's the hero becoming the guide. Mm. And you just kind of go, okay, I know that was really crappy, all the things that happened to you. But honestly, would you take them back? (laughs) You're kind of going, "Uh, I hated it, but I really (laughs) love who I am now. So it's kind of a, and I think that is the heroic story. It's like, I wish I didn't have to have done that, but I sure like the blessings that it's brought into my life. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's exactly how I feel. For me, writing out my story from start to finish has played such a huge role in helping me get to a place where I could reframe it exactly like you were talking about at the beginning of this episode. Um, Mm. You know, one of the things that happened for me as I wrote it out was I realized how much I was playing the victim because I started to see it on the page. Like the first draft of the story, I was like, wow, this, I don't even like this girl. She sounds kind of whiny and and (laughs) (laughs) pathetic. That's how I feel about all my old books. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, and then as I refined the draft, I got to decide how I wanted to tell the story. And I realized I was spending way too much time talking about him and not nearly enough time talking about myself and completely playing the victim Mm -hmm. and writing myself out of the story. Or I have language to say that now that you're, you're giving me this framework. I'm curious if you have thoughts about like, if there's, there are people who are listening who are thinking maybe they're feeling kind of convicted, like, Oh gosh, yes. I find myself playing the victim a lot or even playing the villain. How can we use writing as a tool to help us move into the hero or the guide? position? Well, you know, even before writing, um, Riso and Hudson, who've written a a ton of stuff on the Enneagram, the best thing I've ever read about changing yourself is actually in the blue book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. Yes. And they actually say, you're not going to be able to change yourself by trying to change yourself. They said, just recognize when you're doing it. And that's it. And leave it at that. Like, don't even try to force yourself to do anything else. Just say, hey, you're doing that thing where you play the victim to yourself. Yeah. And then don't judge yourself or condemn yourself or try to change yourself. And, they, and their argument was, 
you will automatically begin to recalibrate your behavior only on the power of self-awareness, leaving the judgment out is even more powerful to, and uh, to affect change. And I found that's true. So to say, I ain't doing that thing where you act like a victim. Are you doing that thing where you're, you know, you get angry or you're doing that thing where you, without judgment. And that's been very, very helpful. Then I think, you know, for me, the power, it goes back to what we started with this interview with is the power of, you know, writing is this ability. The next book I'm, I'm writing is called the victim, the villain, the hero, and the God. You know, that book is going to be very therapeutic for me Mm. to decide, not just help other people see life through this perspective, but to decide for myself, this is how I want to live from now on. Yeah. You know, or, or now I want to formalize it. I've been intuitively doing it. Now I want to actually formalize it and move into this as a way of living. And so I think you're reframing your past and you're paving your future a lot of times when, when you're writing. And writing is another great way to be self-aware. You know, just say, I did the thing where I was acting like a villain today. I'd like to not do that very much anymore. You know, there's some, there's some power to writing it down and memorializing it. And who knows if it's because we see it, you know, visually in word, or it's just tactile with a pencil in our hand or whatever, but it's an incredibly powerful way to change, Mm. to change ourselves. I agree. Okay. Last question before we wrap up, I'm curious how words have helped you shape the world that you live in. So your, your personal life, your family and the wider world. And I know we've touched on some of this, but just kind of final words on, on that thought. Well, they're so powerful. I mean, even before Betsy and I got married, I actually sat down and wrote uh, a rough draft. It, It was actually a business plan. And I was at this business conference and Betsy was back in DC and, and i I'd already written my business plan. So I was in this workshop where we were writing a business plan. I thought, I'm not going to write a business plan. I'm going to write a marriage plan just for fun. And I just wrote that we would have a restorative marriage, that we would practice hospitality, that when people come into our house, they would feel a sense of ease and peace. And then kind of brought that to Betsy and said, Hey, I was just doodling with this. What do you think? And, you know, do you want to edit it? And we just, she loved it and we ran with it. And it shaped, you know, the first year of our marriage, we had over 200 overnight guests. We kept close to that pace for the last seven years, six, seven years. Mm. We've had to build on a 15 acre lot with a guest house and a barn that has meeting spaces. Yeah. You know, we built basically building a retreat center that we move into here next weekend. And that that all happened because of words. Yeah. You know, I mean, really just sat down and said, this is the story that we're going to tell. And both bets are like, okay, let's go that direction. And there, there's no magic to those words. You just write them down and yeah. for whatever reason you go there. And then Betsy, with our house, with the new house we're moving into, she actually did the same thing. She sat down and she framed, you know, what the house was and a mission statement for the house and what, wh- how we would interact with our home and how other people would interact with our home and how we would interact with them in our home. And that's going to define the whole way that that house develops over the next 20 years. Hmm. So, there's just power to words. I mean, they really are and good and bad. And, you know, there is, you know, I'm the older I get, the more I'm realizing that the words that we say to each other can be violent. Yeah. And, you know, and they can hurt just as bad as throwing a punch. And so that I I think why not use them for good? I mean, there, if everybody has been, everybody has heard something from somebody that has really hurt them. So we know words have the power to throw a punch and to cause pain. So if we know that, 
we should also know they have the power to shape worlds and heal hearts and create new realities, right? And really, when you understand that, your your world can become a better and better place because you have so much more control over it, right? Hmm. Yes. With what your your world's going to look like because you can speak it, you can sort of speak it into existence, not, not through some mystical spiritual power, although that may be true. I don't know. It's above my pay grade. But <laughs> in terms of, you know, if I say, uh, Al, you want to go down to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard, you know, and, and connect. <laughs> well, 15 minutes later, should it be, it's not some, some sort of spiritual mystery that you and I are sitting in a Dairy Queen eating a blizzard, right? <laughs> yeah. I, but it, was that a magical thing? I go, okay, so that's a small example. But what if you said, you know, what if we had kids who, uh, you know, half the time we didn't send them to school, but we just went and visited senators and let them know every day they could change the world. Mm. What, what do you think? They're going to end up changing the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Because your words told them they could do that. So I, I, I think they're way more powerful than any of us are giving them credit for. Words, that is. Amazing. Don, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Thanks for being Love such you guys. an inspiration. Love you guys. so grateful. Um, we're super grateful for you. All right. Honored to be on. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.